today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We're continuing to talk about election, municipal election 2018, specifically the mayoral race in Hamilton, which uh, has become an LRT issue. Mayor Fred was on with us yesterday. Uh, I should also say we put out the invitation to Vito Scro, and uh, we've yet to hear back from them. Uh, they have pretty much declined our offer to uh, come on the show. However, they did go on with Scott Radley. Or sorry, he did go on with Scott Radley. Why uh, a, a major mayoral candidate doesn't want to come on and talk to us and answer the tough questions is beyond me. But that's up to, uh, of course, the, the person that is running. Uh, that being said, as I mentioned, he did go on with Scott Radley last night. And Scott asked him why he is against the LRT. Because uh, it, Hamilton does not need LRT. It's not ready for it. The, the Rapid Ready Report, which is the city's own blueprint for transit, along with the 10-year transit plan, states that you need basic transit first across the whole city and ridership up before you even think about a higher order. We're doing it backwards. And why we're doing it backwards, I have no idea. It's destined to fail. Taxes will go up in uh, a huge amount, especially uh, in the suburbs and across the city, because the only way this will work is if you get rid of area rating. And I am not going to touch area rating. I'm going to protect it. Area rating and LRT? I don't get it. Uh, So all I heard there is we're not ready for it. That's all I heard there. We're not ready for it. So let's wait and buy it when it's more expensive. Let's wait and just replace the water mains underneath uh, the route and then do it again later. Isn't this planning? Waiting till you need it? Isn't that too late? Don't we just have to look down the QEW to Toronto and say, that's what they did? Why are we doing it now? Because the Liberal government gave us money to do it. I I just don't see how anything that this candidate has said in that 40-second clip to Scott Radley show last night has, has anything to do with anything. I'm sorry. And if he'd come in and chat with us about it, which we've asked him to do for the last seven days, maybe we could clarify this. But I have a feeling this man does not want to come on the air because he doesn't want to ask these answer these kinds of questions. We're not ready for it. We don't need it. Those are not viable answers. You got to give us more than that. And I'm just not hearing it. The city is not ready for it. Is Kitchener? (laughs) Like, really? I'm sorry. If, you know, you have an issue, it's a major issue. You can debate both sides of the issue. That is only healthy. But the, but the arguments that the, the no side is bringing to this, to me, are just, we're not ready for it. Who? You? The old people? The old Hamiltonians? Because I, I think there's a lot of young people that are ready for it. So what do you mean we're not ready for it? When will we be ready? Five years? That's another question I like to ask this candidate. But again, I can't because he won't come on. So the phone lines are there. Let us ask you these questions that we've been trying to ask 
all week. All right, let's move on from that. The phone lines are buzzing. Uh, maybe one of those is the candidate. All right, let's bring in Peter Grave, professor of political science, McMaster University. Uh, LRT, obviously a wedge issue as we uh, head into this election in virtually a die heat, so uh, dead heat, so says a, a, uh, a survey from Forum Research. Let's bring in Peter now. Peter, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So, um, first of all, have you ever experienced an election that's been this tight or this divisive a main issue? Uh well, I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, in past elections, we haven't had a lot of polling. I mean, we haven't really had much polling. We've had this one poll, so it's hard to know how to treat it. But, uh, you know, in past ones, uh, you know, it hasn't looked to be quite this close just before the, the final uh, days of the campaign. I mean, in terms of a, an election with this divisive an issue, I would think that the 2003 uh, campaign, which in many ways ended up being about the Red Hill Expressway, would be, uh, I think, the closest example of a sort of an issue-based uh, campaign. But, you know, again, in that case, you had two candidates, and Larry Deany and David Christofferson, who were known to Hamiltonians, had records of municipal service and of political service. Uh, they had other things that they were standing for that they were able to clearly articulate. I mean, what's different, I think, in this case is that, you know, there's a divisive issue, which is LRT, and it's allowed us to have a race where one candidate hasn't shown up not just on your show, but, uh, you know, it seems a number of news outlets have tried to interview him. They've had a lot of difficulty reaching him. We're not really sure uh, what his uh, record as a businessman is going to actually bring in terms of running City Hall. We don't have a really good sense of the man. And we don't really have a strong sense of what he stands for besides LRT. And so uh, what's interesting, I think, in this campaign is that, you know, while there's one issue that's been central, like the Red Hill Expressway was in 2003, in a way, you know, we're we're on the verge of potentially electing a mayor about which we have, uh, we really know nothing except he, you know, has one position that is obviously uh, strikes a chord with a, lar- a large number of Hamiltonians. Why doesn't it strike a chord with a large number of Hamiltonians that just the opposite of that? It is one issue, and they don't necessarily know his position on everything else that you've just discussed. And there's so many more facets to the city than just LRT. Um, it, how difficult is it or easy is it for a candidate to run on one issue? Well, I mean, uh, I guess it depends on two things. One, uh, do citizens ask for more? Uh, and I mean, again, it's not just citizens wanting more. They have to have some way of, like, pushing their uh, issues on an election, which is hard to do, uh, you know, without more kind of municipal organization around things. Uh, the other, though, is, like, what are the uh, campaigns of his opponents like? And here I think you have to wonder whether Fred Eisenberger has kind of misplayed his hand. Uh, uh, You would have thought earlier in this campaign he would have pivoted. I mean, in many cases he made the argument, well, you know, LRT is important, but actually there's a lot of things that are more important in this city. Uh, But then we never really figured out what those were. He never was able to really make a mark with those. And I would have expected about a week ago he would have pivoted around the question of experience and, you know, uh, other issues in the city, a capacity to lead, uh, but again, uh, you know, his campaign has been a very quiet one, which is kind of hallmark of Fred Eisenberger, whether we're looking 2006, uh, 2010, 2014. You know, a couple of times he's won by kind of coming in under the radar. But for the most part, we wouldn't have seen those as high-profile or very engaging campaigns that he's run in the past. And I think this one is no, uh, no different from that. Uh, you know, it seems when people are campaigning, when candidates are campaigning uh, for an election cycle, they talk about what they're going to do, what they're going to bring, what they're going to give, what they're going to promise. Uh, we just heard the clip from Vito Scro, and it's 
LRT, we're not ready for it. Which, it just seems an odd way to position why someone should vote for you. I'm not going to give you something because you're not ready for it. Vote for me. Yeah, although, I mean, in fairness, I think Hamiltonians have had a kind of defeatist complex for a long time. Yes, valid point, Peter. And so are willing to, you know, accept people that uh, telling them that they should expect less and that they shouldn't have any dreams because they'll just mess them up. Uh, and, you know, in, in truth, uh, we've had some, you know, municipal politicians who've helped make those dreams come true yeah. <laughs> in terms of that. But, you know, I think that that's part of, you know, that's part of the story. But, you know, it's true, too, that if you go through the rest of uh, Mr. Scrow's campaign, it's hard to find real clear things uh, of what he's going to do, even uh, an idea that he has an understanding of the issues are. So even around things like, you know, economic development in the city, it seems to be mostly let's get people sitting around a table and maybe they'll come up with some ideas as opposed to here's my ideas about how, you know, we can redevelop, say, the Stelco lands, which was one of the, the things in, in his uh, in his campaign. So, uh, you know, again, it's a, it's a candidacy, which, again, uh, of course, I mean, at the beginning of the campaign, if you said, you know, is Mr. Scrow uh, qualified to be mayor of the city? Well, he'd probably fall well back in a list behind another 100 or 150 people who might have more qualifications for it. But he's very effectively, uh, in, in light of there not really being other serious candidacies, been able to ride this one issue. But as a result, yeah, I mean, again, there hasn't been any question about whether he has ideas beyond this one idea that we must not do the LRT. But even the positive vision is, you know, which is we should bring in the blast network, um, is, well, that's pretty much what we're doing with the LRT, is, yeah. you know, building the, the B line of that while also making moves on a number of those other lines. So, uh, again, it's, it is a candidacy. Uh, it's kind of cynically built on being uh, opposed to one thing that's divisive in the community. It's allowed him to leapfrog from being someone no one would have considered for mayor to being someone, you know, on the verge of potentially winning. Uh, but again, it does raise questions about his capacity to be mayor if he was elected. Uh, the government, uh, the provincial government made it quite clear uh, a week or so ago about what the money, uh, the $1 billion can be used for. Uh, MPP Skelly saying infrastructure, infrastructure and transit uh, or LRT. It seems to me that we're using money for a capital project, a legacy, a legacy project like LRT, and we're spending it on stuff that some would say are maintenance issues. Uh, we need uh, crumbling infrastructure, so we'll fix our roads, we'll fix our bridges, uh, and all that sort of thing. Isn't that done anyway? Why aren't those two separate budgets? Why are we taking money from a legacy project and, and, and happy with just getting our potholes fixed when other cities, you know, that, that paints the illusion that other cities are, are just like walking on stone roads, but they got a shiny LRT. Why, why are people allowing that confusion? Uh, well, I mean, I guess the idea uh, would be that if you don't like the LRT, it's still hard to say no to a check for a billion dollars. Uh, and so you need to come up with some sort of argument that you could not have the LRT, but still there'd be resources coming into our community. And I think that's uh, that's why that's always been a kind of uh, shiny thing to dangle in front of voters. But, but to know, me, Peter, that seems like, and I've used this analogy before, that seems like your grandparents giving you a birthday card with $10 in it, and then your mother taking it to buy underwear instead of you putting it towards your new bike. At the end of the day... Why are we using things that are for legacy projects just to do things that will be done anyway, whether we get an LRT or not? 
Well, I mean, I think uh, in that sense, it's uh, a lack of confidence in the city's future uh, and the manner in which this kind of investment is actually going to spur, uh, you know, important growth in the lower city and, and then therefore sort of reduce the, uh, you know, taxes across the city. But again, I think it's uh, there's a kind of defeatist attitude behind a fair bit of it. I mean, I think in addition, you know, it's actually not going to be a billion dollars because we were we spent about a hundred million doing engineering studies and preparing land and so on to make this happen. And you know, given the experience of Ottawa, of course, which you know a couple of election cycles ago elected a, a businessman who was relatively unknown as mayor, who said he was going to cancel their LRT, and the first thing that that then led to was a series of uh, lawsuits by people who were under contract in terms of its development. And in the end, they figured it was actually made more sense to go forward with it than settle the lawsuits. But you know, so I mean, there'll be more money for winding up the project, and so yeah, by the time you get into there, you're you're well down from a billion. You know, beyond which, uh, by the time you come up with projects to propose to the provincial government, it's quite possible that provincial government's going to say, "Well, wait a second. Uh, you know, we just we're just spending four billion extra for having cancelled uh, the cap and trade, and we've got this big hole that our this report just came out about how deep we are in deficit. So, Hamilton, you can wait another four years for that money exactly. comes going. In other words, forever. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a game of sleight of hand. Uh, involved in that promise, but it's you know again it captures I think a kind of defeatist attitude that you know building the LRT is just a money pit, and so you know there's there's no you know it would be like buying a broken bike versus your underwear I guess mm. <laughs> use your analogy. Right. But again, uh, we don't see uh, you know I look up to Ottawa, I look down to Kitchener Waterloo, I, I see uh, a lot of civic excitement and investment decisions being made around those plans as part of uh, city building. Uh, in Hamilton, there seems to be an unwillingness to uh, have the excitement that you might uh, enable Hamilton to go and try and do different things than it's done historically. Is this candidate, uh, Vito Scro taking advantage or capitalizing on that defeatist attitude, do you think? Uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think it is this idea that it's like a train to, you know, if, uh, stop the train. Uh, there's no point doing it. Uh, you should just fix the infrastructure. I mean, in a way, it's saying that if we had a billion dollars, we'd be better off sort of ripping up the 14 kilometers along King Street and just doing the sewers rather than doing the sewers and having well, that's an LRT the thing. on top of it. Well, yeah. that's the thing that Fred said here yesterday, is that the majority of the cost of the LRT is the infrastructure that goes underneath the road that has to be replaced, that will re- be replaced because it's it's 100 years old, and if you're digging up the road, you might as well do that too as well. It's the, the, it's the infrastructure that's the majority cost of the LRT. Yeah, I mean, there is a pretty big two birds, one stone argument about this. And so then, <laughs> You'd think. And so, I mean, then the other thing is about, again, coming back to the confidence, right? If you see the LRT as just a way to move people, I mean, already I think you could make a pretty strong case that that's going to be important given the growth we're seeing in the city and then the necessity of moving a larger number of people uh, in and through the downtown. Um, but, you know, it's not just that, right? It's also a manner of trying to get towards these intensification goals that the previous conservative and liberal governments have put on the city, right? The idea that we can't keep growing just by building more suburbs. We have to find a more compact way of developing our city. And again, you know, the LRT is part of that story in terms of being able to cluster people around uh, mobility nodes so that they can get to work and they can get to where they need to be in, in a very efficient way that's not adding more cars on the road. But again, uh, you know, that's a, a vision beyond, uh, I think, the one that uh, Mr. Scroll wants to put forward. I think he wants to convince people that it's just transit and probably transit for people who aren't like you. 
Uh, Will, Will, again, going back to what he said on Radley's show, uh, we're not ready for it. When are we ready for it? Uh, You talked about the growth downtown. All we have to do is drive down there to see it uh, pretty much on a weekly or a monthly basis. How does not ready for it or don't need it resonate with voters? Uh, Well, I guess it probably does resonate with voters, right? It it, it helps build this idea. I mean, I think his big point there is, right, you can look at this report, and if you're a bit selective in what you cherry-pick out of it, you can make the case that, you know, those words are there. Obviously, they weren't that convincing to the Ontario uh, government, uh, you know, ministers who were looking at it and saying, no, actually, Hamilton's ready, and by the time we start building this, it will be even more ready. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's useful then in kind of making this case that it's not just me, Vito Scro saying that this is a bad idea, but the city itself, you know, said it was. But then for some reason they decided to go forward anyway. Um, but, you know, I think that's really how it plays. It's less uh, the claim of not ready, that the, the claim that somehow the city knows this is a failed project and they're trying to hoodwink you further. Do you think these polls will change a voter turnout heading into an election? Does this mean that people are captivated by this? Or is it just guys like you and me? Uh, yeah, I don't think the polls will make a huge difference. I, I think it probably will add, you know, push a few people to ask a question. Right? It's kind of costless to register your opposition to the LRT when you think the person's going to lose anyways. But you know, once uh, Mr. Scroll might win, you might ask a question. You know, is this guy actually qualified to you know, run a pop shop, a pop stand, let alone the city of Hamilton? Uh, does he actually believe in any other things that I believe in, or is it just on this one issue that I share that with him? So I think it may, you know, it may lead to a certain gut check time, uh, and people begin to say, "Well, if I'm against the LRT, maybe I'll vote for my, you know, local uh, anti-LRT councillor." But you know, do I really want to leave the leadership of the the city in the hands of someone about whom I really know nothing, you know, in terms of his capacity uh, to act in a statesmanlike manner? And you know, certainly the clip you played from the the Scott Radley show, I mean, may also give you a certain sense about his demeanor and its capacity uh, to, to address issues. And so, again, people may ask some of those questions uh, given this poll. I don't know if it will drive turnout, but it probably does uh, make a number of people think about uh, their choices when they're no longer costless, when they might actually make a difference in who wins this election. We're getting people to, uh, emailers are calling us, asking us why we didn't have him on, why we don't ask him this questions, why we're doing it now. We've at, we started this process last week. We started this process at the beginning of last week. Uh, and Mayor Fred didn't have a problem rearranging his schedule or doing whatever his schedule to get on. So uh, obviously people have the perception that uh, we're not having him on and that he's not coming on to the media. Why do you think he's decided to use this approach and sort of stay out of the media? Yeah, and I mean, it's been the same with, you know, the Spectator, the CBC, uh, uh, you know, a number of different sources around town. It's been the same where invitations have gone unanswered. Uh, and so, I mean, I guess there's there's two ways of thinking about it. One is to say candidates realize that maybe they can get elected without actually having to speak to the media. Uh, I mean, and we saw some indications of that around the Ford and the uh, Harper campaigns federally and provincially, a certain, you know, strategy of doing that. But the other might be that ultimately uh, Mr. Scrow realizes he may not actually appear that well in these forums and that it's better for him to duck them. You know, not simply because of getting tough questions on the LRT, but perhaps also because it's not clear what else he stands for. And he'd rather not have, you know, attention paid to, you know, how well he can answer questions about, well, you know, what's happening to social housing in this city? Uh, what, what should we do around policing? Uh, how are we going to maintain, uh, you know, a, a balanced budget given the different cost drivers in the city? I mean, it's not clear that he actually has much knowledge about any of those files. 
you know, from his own materials that he's put out, and presumably then he wouldn't want to be caught flat-footed uh, with questions, uh, you know, in, in, the, in these different media outlets. Peter Grave has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. What impact will legislation, legalization of pot that is now in place as of October 17th have on the Canadian economy? And is there a threat to the black market? Let's bring in Michael, uh, Michael Armstrong, PhD, Associate Professor, Goodman School at Business, Brock University, and on the line with us now. Thanks so much for the time, Michael. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, my first question here, Michael, is the whole idea behind this was about safety and, and keeping it out of the hands of kids and, and making sure that the the product is safe, this, that, and the other, safety, 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 safety. Why would you make something legal uh, and as, as if we, as we did just this week, but in this province, it's still impossible to get because you can only get it through mail order and there's a postal strike looming, and they've said it's taking up to ten or five days for a delivery. So does this not help the black market by opening up the doors and then restricting or certainly making it difficult to get? Uh, for us in Ontario, this is just uh, another delay, yes. Uh, another, uh, if you like, grace period while the uh, black market can just keep on chugging along. Um, and uh, I, I agree with your point that uh, it's it's kind of amusing to listen to the uh, various politicians' speeches when they're making announcements about what is technically uh, liberalization uh, of uh, cannabis use, uh, making it more freely available. Nine out of ten of the words that come out of their mouths are about control and safety and uh, conservative uh, code words, if you like, uh, trying to reassure the public, I suppose. But uh, anyway... That's uh, that's for the political scientists to discuss. Uh, obviously, the PCs changed the direction of distribution way back when uh, Premier the the last Premier Premier Win was in charge. Uh, they they responded to this rollout uh, by having it as an extension of the LCBO, and um, and and the the cannabis control store would be an arm of that. Obviously, when the government changed, that changed, and Ford decided to go away from an LCBO type model and move on into private retail. Uh, is there any way they could have done this and not and not be where we are now? In other words, could, is there any way they could have made the change to the system and be ready? Um, realistically, probably not. Um, the uh, There are many things that we could criticize about the uh, conservative governments in terms of decision and policies, but this one is is actually one that got left with a a mess. Uh, The previous Liberal government had uh, decided to go with public sector, as you say, basically an LCBO-style system, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Uh, I mean, public sector, private sector, each have their own advantages. Uh, The problem was that they... Although they got the legislation done very quickly, way back in December 2017, uh, then they were very slow about implementing that. So as of uh, uh, back in June when the election campaign was underway, uh, only four store sites had been announced. Uh, No progress was actually made on those four sites until after the election in July. Renovation suddenly started. so when the Conservatives came into power, uh, Mr. Ford t- took office in July, he really didn't have anything much to scrap. Uh, there were four kind of 
very tentative renovations in progress, no announcements about the stores. Even the promise 40 stores wasn't going to be very much for a province of 14 million people. Um, so I think that made it very easy for them uh, to say, look, you know, we're a conservative government. We would rather have private sector instead of public sector. So it was very easy for them to, to throw that out. So given that they're throwing it out, you know, in the middle of summer, uh, that really didn't leave enough time to come up with new legislation, come up with the regulations, the details to back up the legislation, and then actually try and get stores up and running. So uh, they probably could have done a little better, but not much. Uh, at the end of the day, the Liberals are probably thinking this isn't a problem we have to worry about. Um, Federal or provincially, uh, either one, I suppose. Um, yeah, I guess you, you could look at it that way, too. All right, uh, uh, is there less money to be made for the Ontario government by doing it privately as opposed to opening all your your own Ontario cannabis stores, similar to the LCBO? Is the same amount of revenue being brought into government coffers, whether it's one way or the other? Uh, that depends more on the details of the pricing, uh, details of the taxation. Um Keep in mind that in the short term, there isn't really going to be much revenue coming into government coffers. It's going to be mostly an expense. Um, the expense of uh, regulating the whatever sales mechanism is done, the expense of having to figure out uh, policing systems, bylaw enforcement, all that. Um, and keeping in mind that part of the government's goal is to keep the price low enough to try and compete with the black market. So it's not like... Um, uh, alcohol and tobacco, where they slap on huge taxes and that actually becomes profitable. Uh, realistically speaking, the uh, the government retailer was probably going to run at a loss for a couple years. So I don't think there's going to be a huge difference in government uh, revenues. In fact, in the short term, this saves uh, the Ontario government and thus us taxpayers the cost of setting up a public sector retailer. That part's now been uh, pass over to the private sector. So they'll they'll take care of that cost. So they don't have the cost of the bricks and mortar set up and so forth, but still the revenue, the tax revenue is relatively the same. I think so. Um, uh, I mean, five years from now, I think is when we're gonna, we should be talking about, okay, how much money can the government make uh, or what they need to take in in order to cover all their expenses. Uh, we're, we're a long way away from that. Uh, how difficult is it going to be, uh, obviously, uh, from what you're saying, in regard to how we handle this in Ontario, the elections certainly have bought the PC some time as we switch from one system to another. How difficult is it going to be to license these stores, these retailers? Any thought on how that's going to roll out? Well, the, uh, the government's still debating that legislation. The, uh, the bill, the Ontario bill, uh, went through committee, had some amendments attached, but it still hasn't been uh, actually passed. Uh, and we have no idea about the details of the regulations that will come with it. But what's in the legislation, uh, you will need three licenses. Uh, you're going to need a license uh, to have a cannabis retail company. Then you'll need a license for each store site. And then the, uh, there's a license for each of the managers of those store sites. Um, and in terms of eligibility, uh, so far it seems to be pretty wide open. Um, they are saying that uh, if you have an offense under the new cannabis regulations, the ones that start as of Wednesday this, this week, uh, you would be ineligible. So if you're running a, an illegal shop today, uh, the law won't let you run apply for a license. Yeah. Uh, it's 
still a bit open if you had a, uh, an illegal dispensary last week but shut up uh, the shop as of Wednesday. Uh, it looks like you will probably be able to apply for a license, uh, but the, there's some details uh, still to come there. The other uh, restrictions in the legislation so far is they won't allow anyone who grows cannabis as a licensed producer to have more than one retail site. So the big companies like Canopy Growth, uh, Aurora Cannabis, uh, they're only going to be allowed to have basically one factory outlet, whereas uh, they were hoping to set up chains of maybe 100 stores each across the province. So who will who will jump on board? Will it be the mom-and-pop type places or the dispensary type places that we're seeing in towns and cities now? Or will this be like a Starbucks or a Coca-Cola or a Shopper's Drug Mart type of thing? I think it's going to be a mix of all of the above. Uh, Ontario hasn't set... Uh, has decided not to set uh, overall limits on the number of stores, like um, Manitoba, uh, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland have gone with private sector, but they've rationed the number of licenses. Uh, we're going more of the Alberta model, which is as long as you meet zoning, as long as you get the licenses, uh, you can have a store. So I think Ontario is going to see over a 1,000 stores uh, within a year or two, uh, potentially get up close to 2,000. I think... What you said is exactly right. There will be a mix. There will be some uh, mom-and-pop local entrepreneurs who decide they want to run a shop. In fact, one of the students in my classes is already making his business plan hmm. uh, to do that. Um, but, yes, there will definitely be some uh, bigger corporations. Uh, the producers have been ruled out, but there are companies like Second Cup who are thinking about converting their co- some of their coffee shops. There are other companies who have the... Uh, uh, the means to set up uh, chains, uh, just like uh, there's one going uh, going up in Alberta that's aiming for about uh, 25 to 30 stores across Alberta. Um, and then there could also be some established companies, uh, again, looking at Alberta, uh, the co-op grocery chain in Calgary has got licenses to sell cannabis. The Loblaws uh, in both Calgary and Newfoundland, some of them ha- have licenses. So they're building little pot shops Inside the grocery store? Uh, well, it depends. Uh, in, Cal- in Calgary, I believe they're going to be standalones, but they'll be kind of attached to the grocery store. Like the uh, old wine shops used to be. Yes. Oh, Technically man. separate, but, you know, it's, it's pretty clear it's, it's that part of the same company. Uh, in Newfoundland, because, I guess because of their smaller population, they actually are allowing uh, some of the stores to be just basically uh, cannabis service desks, uh, just like if you buy tobacco or uh, now the wine shops and the bigger grocery stores. They've got that little section where you go to the counter and you can get your uh, your tobacco or your wine. What uh, about what about the, in Ontario or I think it's federally? They don't want you selling alcohol and and cannabis together. So if you've got if you're a grocery store that's got a license to sell beer or wine, would that eliminate you? Probably, right? That's a provincial regulation. Yeah. Uh, so in Nova Scotia, uh, eleven out of their twelve cannabis shops are actually within local liquor stores. This is a, a cannabis section. It's well so, the law, so the law to keep them out of liquor stores is not federal, it's just provincial. It's provincial. Ah. Um, so most of the provinces have said that. They don't want alcohol and tobacco sold, or alcohol and cannabis sold together. But again, I think because Nova Scotia is a relatively small population, they said, you know, it makes a lot of sense for them to take their existing liquor store network and just plunk in uh, little cannabis outlets. I don't think we'll see that here. Uh, except maybe up north, uh, some of the rural areas of Ontario. Right. Uh, predominantly, I think Ontario, we're going to see standalone shops, but standalone could mean bolted onto the side of a bigger store. 
Uh, You talked about the gray area, which law enforcement, it isn't gray at all. They'll tell you after October 17th, anybody that is selling retail in Ontario is doing so illegally. You can only get it through the website at this point. That being said, once retail is up and running and everything settles down just a little bit and there's some sort of normalcy here, are these illegal shops going to still be operating or will we see a mass crackdown on this? Because there seems to have been some gray area and some leeway here, depending on where you are. But at the end of the day, you can't open up a roadside stand and sell beer. So <laughs> are, are we going to allow the same thing here? I mean, and I'm guessing those that are spending the money and doing the legwork to get licenses aren't going to want someone doing it, you know, in a roadside stand or whatever sort of means or a storefront that is that hasn't jumped through the hoops. Are we going to see an end to this? That's a really good question. Uh, It's going to come down to a bunch of competing factors, I think. Uh, um, One of them is what you just pointed out. Companies that are jumping through the hoops, they're paying their licenses fees, paying their taxes, aren't going to want to compete against unlicensed stores, so they're going to complain. Some of the... uh, um, dispensaries that were operating last week from what I was reading in the news reports. Uh, there are actually a fair number who did shut down Tuesday night. They had sales on uh, Monday, Tuesday, uh, say in the uh, Ottawa area, out in uh, Vancouver, I think, or some more. Um, but in terms of the remaining shops, uh, particularly where there is no uh, retail store, like Ontario right now, uh, large parts of other provinces too, um, I think it might come sort of be a, a test of wills or endurances or maybe stubbornness is a better word. Uh, how long will the uh, operators keep operating versus how, how much effort do the police forces want to put into prosecuting? Um, that's kind of an open question. I'm, I have no doubt that on the one hand, uh, government now feels, okay, you know, we provided this legal method. There's no justification for these uh, illegal dispensaries to keep operating. On the other hand, there's now going to be the sentiment, well, this is no longer an illegal product. It's just a question of, okay, it's a taxation or a business issue. Are you paying your taxes or not? And that kind of, in some people's minds at least, that's uh, kind of a lower level of stigma attached to it. Um, so I, that's that will be interesting to see. So here we are. Uh, it's Friday. This all happened on Wednesday. Your thought on this, the impact it's had um, as it's all rolled out, as you're looking at it a couple of days in, what are your thoughts? Uh, we haven't had mass chaos. The world has not fallen apart. Uh, some of the doom and gloom uh, forecasts uh, have not materialized, so that's a good sign. Uh, on the other hand, there's been all kinds of lots of little hiccups in terms of uh, stores running out of product. Apparently, a lot of the producers didn't uh, meet their delivery schedules, and they're blaming, in turn, a shortage of uh, was it uh, licensing stickers, the little stickers that say, yes, we've paid our taxes. Um, so I think there there will be lots of hiccups. Uh, there have been. Those will get gradually ironed out. Um, and along with all the special issues about cannabis on the business side are all the very traditional things like, okay, let's get that inventory flowing smoothly. Uh, let's get into routine. Uh, let's figure out, well, what are the customers actually buying? Because it's kind of been a, an initial guess. Let's throw up a bunch of products on the website and see what sells. As information starts to come in, the growers will now have a much better idea of what customers want, what they should produce. Uh, the retailers will have a better idea of what they should be ordering more of. 
what stock levels to keep. Um, so that's a lot of uh, business uh, issues to uh, to iron out. So I think we're off to yeah, it's a bit of a bumpy start. Gee, I wish we had a lot more stores running. Uh, particularly, we're not going to make much dent in the black market until we have a lot more stores running. But for the first three days, yeah, it's not too bad. How is the rest of the world viewing Canada? From an industry perspective, how far is Canada ahead of the rest of the world in this industry? And what does that say for the future? Um, The first thing that's interesting is the world is actually paying attention to Canada. Uh, The United States media is actually talking about Canada all week, which is unusual for them. Uh, So it's kind of nice that way. but in terms of the cannabis industry, um, there are a potential uh, for our Canadian companies to be world leaders in what is potentially a global industry. Uh, I know we're only the second country to uh, legalize it. We're the first, uh, I'm not sure whether we're G7 developed industrialized country to, uh, to do so. Um, and we've got the full actual business apparatus behind it. So we have big corporations, uh, they have financing, they have mass production going, they're driving their production costs down. Uh, we used to talk in terms of about you know, $2 a gram to grow. Uh, it's already dropped below a dollar a gram. Uh, some companies figure they can get down to 20 cents a gram. So we could be looking at pennies per gram. It's going to become a commodity product. Um, on the global scale, if other countries follow, so there's already a number of other countries uh, that have authorized medical cannabis. Uh, some Canadian companies are already exporting to Europe for that reason. Uh, we have a nice head start on that. Uh, if you look at other countries like uh, Israel, is actually a leader apparently on cannabis research, but their government has been very reluctant to allow actual production or export. So Canada kind of has a little edge on that. Uh, similarly, other countries, uh, United States, big pharmaceutical uh, industry down there, they can't really do much right now because of American regulations. So Canadian companies have this potential advantage, uh, but they have a lot of work to do to maintain it because once those other countries do lift restrictions, um, you know they're going to have to compete. Um, one thing I was uh, joking with a friend uh, this week uh, in terms of the United States in particular, you know they're they have a lot of liberalization to do. The states are starting to authorize, but the federal is not. Uh, the next time the American president comes up to us and says, you know, hey, he's got complaints about trade policy, he wants to open up our agricultural market, I think we should make him a counteroffer and say, you can sell your American milk in Canada, we want to sell our Canadian cannabis down the state. <laughs> this, could have been a, this could have been an arm of NAFTA. Exactly. If only it had happened a year later. Man. Maybe that C actually stands for cannabis. <laughs> hey, it's not over yet. None of this has been ratified yet, right? That's we can sneak it in. True. Michael Armstrong has been with us, Ph.D. Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business at Brock University. Michael, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The threat of a strike looming for Monday. Uh, do you think it's just a coincidence? Because we've been talking about this issue, this uh, uh, this discrepancy between employees and the corporation for uh, several weeks, a couple of months, actually, several months. And now all of a sudden there's talk of a strike. Is it related to where we have cannabis? 
Uh, let's bring in Alan Freeman, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. That's great. Good so, to speak to you. Is there in, do you think there's any coincidence, Alan, between the timing of this strike and, and cannabis going on sale? Well, I mean, I guess the, the, the postal workers may feel as if they've got, <clears throat> you know, some, some sort of uh, benefit or something like that. They can put extra pressure on Canada Post. But, like, in the whole scheme of things, in terms of numbers of millions of parcels a year that Canada Post delivers, you know, when you think of what Amazon and other people like that deliver every day, I would think that cannabis is not going to be a big proportion of it. I mean, it's, it, it would obviously, and I would guess that the, um, you know, Canada Post is not a monopoly when it comes to parcels. So um, I would guess that the, you know, provincial cannabis organizations will be able to use other, or, you know, other companies, UPS, FedEx, Purelater, which happens to be owned by Canada Post. So, I mean, obviously, it will create delays. I think the big delay for the cannabis is, is, is really in the production rather than delivery. Rather than delivery, yeah. Uh, back in the 1970s and 80s, if there was threat of a postal strike, everybody was up in arms. It would literally bring uh, certain industries to a halt and such as they scrambled and tried to figure out what was going on. Do these strikes have the impact they once did? Obviously, no, I, they I, don't. How know, much do they They don't. Have? You know, uh, uh, back then... Um, you know, the uh, it, it, old age pensions, unemployment insurance checks, you know, welfare checks, payments to, um, to small business. I remember my dad was a, a small, you know, was a sole practitioner lawyer, and there would be <clears throat> two mail deliveries a day, and everything yeah. was going through the mail, you know, uh, it, <clears throat> payments, letters to, to customers, you know, uh, all that stuff. And that was a big, big deal. Right now, I think the concern for Canada Post and the union would be is that if there is a strike and people don't notice or hardly notice. Mm. Um, you know, just check your mail every day. How many things that you get these days in your mail is something that you can't live without? I mean, I, I actually... Um, a year or so ago, I actually follow track my mail for a couple of months, and it was amazing. You know, some days I didn't get anything. Some days it was just as you know, essentially what you know, what do you call junk mail? I yeah. guess you know, ads, flyers. I get a couple of magazines. Can I live without that? Yeah, I pay all my bills online. Um, I guess every once in a while, and you, you could do without that. You get a notice from CRA, which has been you know slow for good reason, to, to, to uh, move to online. But aside from that, there's a lot of stuff, you, you know, in terms of mail, you, can't, you can live without. Uh, and parcels, there are other parcel delivery people. So it, it makes, you know, the future of Canada Post is there's a big question mark over it, right? And, and as you said, with having other options, if you're a business and you've been using Canada Post for a period of time and then all of a sudden, you know, you have to switch simply because you need an alternative mode of distribution and then you start on with a, a FedEx or somebody else, right. why would you go back? I mean, well, they, they must be worried about, they must be worried about the, the backlash and just once people get comfy in something else, they'll say, well, why do I have to put up with this? No, no, that's why I think they're very reluctant. I think both sides, even the union, you know, there are nevertheless, you know, 50,000 unionized employees at Canada Post. It's an important employer. Um, 
you know, these are good jobs. They still have, for example, a defined benefit pension plan, which, you know, I assure you, UPS and FedEx are not offering their employers. So they, so they do have higher costs. And so longer term, you know, we're dealing, it's just like a situation, look, I used to work for a newspaper. You know, these, the Canada Post is a big victim in terms of the, um, on one side, you know, in terms of what they call transactional mail. Their volumes are are continuing to decline, right? And there's no end in sight there. Now they've been able to compensate in part with um, with with parcels, which you know all power to them. I think a third of their revenue now, 33% last year, came from parcels, and the parcels continue to grow. And I don't know, maybe it'll plateau, but you know for now. But you know it's a very different business, and um, and I think that you know they cross subsidize one another. And as the, you know, the transactional mail volumes continue to decline, they're not going to be able to, you know, hold up the, the, the you know, the, the parcel side of business. You know, you can imagine it's a huge transformation. You know, they've got all these uh, sorting plants that were largely built for letters. Right. You know, so, um, you know what, you bring up a valid point here because every, you know, there's lots of people that say, well, you know, this is a natural transition for Canada Post. Uh, letters are on their way out, as you mentioned, and, and obviously with, uh, with e-commerce and, and more online shopping, there certainly is, um, uh, you know, money to be made in the distribution arm of, of all of this. But uh, at the end of the day, are they making up that money that they lost in letters? And talk about the infrastructure. Do they have to upgrade there to go from a majority of letters? I think they are. You know, to... they, they have been doing it. But, you know, look, it's, it's, it's going to be a very different business. And the thing is, is that, you know, they still are, you know, they, they don't run like a regular business because it's owned by the government. So, you know, for, for good reasons, traditional reasons, there are post offices in every small town and hamlet in the in the country right um you know it, it's funny i mean i guess they're transitioning it's still pretty it's pretty strange you know i live in ottawa there is a postal station not far from my house but i never go there i go to the shoppers drug mart postal you know kiosk which is you know more convenient i don't know who goes to that post station you know post office um so those those type of things are very you know are going to be it's a it's a real transitional problem for them now i think the federal government uh the trudeau government has delayed this till after the next election because you remember they they reversed that decision to eliminate door to door delivery yeah. right it's really you know like in every, so many other things it's really tough to take away something that people I've got used to having, right? Let me t- let me let's go there, though, Alan, because you know here we are talking about yeah. what it needs. What you know, everybody's talking. They want Canada Post. It's one of those Canadian institutions. How do we keep it? What do we do? Yet everybody seems to have their foot stuck in the mud trying to keep it to what it was. Yeah. So, what needs to be done to modernize it here? I mean, here's a, a perfect scenario where we were talking about getting rid of uh, super mail, uh, uh, home mail delivery, which is something that's been done since the 1980s. And there's still some people that are that are still on home mail delivery, but as as soon as the government announces that, we, and it happened here, we have local councillors here that all of a sudden stood up and said, "Oh, you can't take away these people's home mail delivery." Is yeah. it is it those people that are stopping that are actually hurting Canada Post by keeping it in the 1950s with home mail delivery and won't let it modernize? Well, you know, the thing is, is that. Um, I, 
that was, you know, the, the other thing is I don't even actually think that stopping home delivery will be the solution, right? Um, it probably will no, end up happening. That postal it. truck took off long ago. Yeah. So, um, you know, and then there's a whole thing about, yeah, it's, it's it, for, you know, for people who live in, in, in most of, you know, suburban Canada, they say, you know, what are these inner city people? They've got it. You know, they've got that. Why do they get that uh, benefit that we don't get, right? So th- there, there is that, you know, there is that, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, but again, it's politics, right? And that's, that's one of the things is that you're not dealing with a regular company, right? You're dealing with a government-owned company. So it doesn't really have the freedom to, like, shut down that local post office, right? Uh, they've been doing it, but they don't do it as quickly as, you know, a bank would close its local uh, bank branch. And again, um, you know, their customers are also their shareholders. So it's, it makes it a pretty tough business to run. Um, but, you know, I, I, I still think that this is, um, uh, that it, it, you know, the, the union has to be aware of this as well. They obviously want to protect their their employees, their, you know, their members, um, what's going to happen? You know, there's a big, what they call a pension fund deficit, um, that Canada Post has had certain holidays. Mm. It's supposed to pay it back. It's, you know, several billion dollars, right? So these are, um, you know, so the, 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 the pension fund has obligations going into the future that, um, you know, if it shut down tomorrow, they wouldn't be able to meet. So the, the company is supposed to mm. pay this down over time. That's another. So and that would really cut into Canada Post's pretty meager profits. They're still making a small profit, but not a huge amount of money. Is this a no brainer? Is there something that Canada Post could do uh, as far as setting a new business plan and we wouldn't be having this discussion anymore? No, I mean, uh, look, look at. Uh, at postal services around the world. They're not in any better shape. The U.S. is a total mess because they've refused to actually um, deal with their issues. They've got a huge pension fund deficit. It's been one of these things that is, is like, toxic in Congress. Um, they've got, you know, arguably lower, <laughs> lower postal rates, but it's not been solved. I don't think any country has really solved this thing. Um, and, um, you know, the question is, is that, you know, I've, you've heard, the other thing is that first class mail, right? There's a first class mail is a monopoly. And some people have said, oh, well, we don't need this as a monopoly anymore. You know, we, there should be competition as the way there is in parcels and stuff. But I don't know who's going to get into the first class mail business. Yeah, now it's just yeah. not going to happen. I mean, or maybe, and who would serve, and maybe in, in certain parts of cities that are highly dense, highly you know concentrated, you can make a living at it. But nobody's going to be in the first class mail delivery business in you know in Exerbia or rural Canada. Hmm. So what, I don't really think that's much of a solution either. Obviously, this is a Canadian institution, which is why it has lasted you know as long as it has, and and some are reluctant to. Modern, not even modernize it, let alone let it go. Are there other options? They've always, you know, whenever you have people on from from uh, Canada Post, uh, especially with the union, they'll talk about other options. Why can't well, we be? Why can't things. we be a bank? Why can't we do this? Yeah, well, why don't they know, sell weed there? What like what, what can we do? <laughs> no, you know the thing is, is that um, 
Okay, I, I lived in the UK for a while, and there there was a long tradition, right, of people who uh, banking with the post office. You know, small towns, people didn't have a bank account, but they had a postal account. But can I tell you something? The banks are getting out of that business of yeah. having Again, branches. Again, automation right? due to automation. Right. And people, you know, how many people really never go into the, their bank anymore? Good point. Maybe they go to an ATM, but people don't even use ATMs very much because they're using, um, you know, tap yep. cards, right? Yep. So th- all that world has changed. So I, I think the union, to think that they can trans, like, why would anybody go to a Canadian post office to open a bank account in, in you know, 2018? Like, I mean, I think, again... That, you know, that ship has left the port. You know, it's not going to save Canada Post. Um, you know, I think the parcel stuff, they seem to have been, you know, and they seem to be doing the, you know, uh, they seem to be quite efficient at. I don't see a difference when I get a parcel delivered by Canada Post between them and anybody no. else. They seem mm-hmm. to be doing that job well. Good for them. Is it enough to save this corporation with, you know, $8 billion of, of revenue and 50,000 employees if, you know, if the transactional mail business continues to decline, it's sort of like at one point, you know, newspapers, like at one point, does it make, does it make any sense for, you know, Toronto Star or Hamilton Spectator to continue to send out trucks with newspapers on them? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's mm-hmm. just the opposite mm-hmm. of, uh, of, it's uh, not know, the institution, uh, it's the method of delivery. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and it's the, it's it's a question of scale too, right? You yeah. know, scale is good. You know, you have trucks full of papers and you deliver a hundred to a, a newsstand, or you have you know ten letters to each door. But when you get to a point of there are two letters to each door, and um, you know, no newspapers to deliver at one point, it just gets too expensive. So, you know, those are issues that I think are not going to go away. We'll see what happens. Uh, I, you know, I don't know about the rotating strikes, and I think it's interesting that they're talking about rotating strikes because I think they're afraid of doing yeah, a big yeah. national strike. It, so they yeah. want to, I, it to hurt, but they're... Um, I, I don't think they're as sold on this either, uh, that, that it's a good idea. Uh, is it too little, too late for Canada Post? That being said, if it was a Sears, it would be failing by now. Um, because Canada Post hasn't kept up step by step, and now it appears that they're two or three or four steps behind, this isn't going to get any easier to get, you know, uh, yeah. super well, mailboxes well, switched around. Has it, taken too, has it taken too long to modernize? Will it get to the point where the, the brand just becomes irrelevant like a Sears? Yeah. No, but, but, you know, it's not as if they are big into the e-commerce game, and they are into... Parcels, they, you know, they deliver, I think, more parcels than anybody else does in the country. So they haven't missed on that. But the question is, can that business compensate enough for, you know, for the decline in the... Um, and their high costs. Yeah, and the high costs. Now, that's, that's a, a union thing. That, the union's not going to go away. Uh, you understand where the union has, people have entitlements, they have certain, you know, they've got a good pension plan. Their, their members are not going to be very anxious to give that up, right? Mm-hmm. So, but what we'll give, I don't know. And again, it'll become politics, but don't expect anything until the next federal election, after the next federal election. It really is the survival, the future, all of this. It's really up to government, isn't it? Because if it was up to industry, if it was up to supply and demand, they'd be gone by now. 
Yeah, or else they'd be, you know, I mean... It, it's certainly have a different look anyway. Yeah, no, no, that's true. I mean, look, as you're saying, look what happened to Sears. I mean, these are huge changes in our, in our society, right, that, that are taking place, you know. Uh, and there are all sorts of businesses that have more or less disappeared, you know. Travel agents, if you're, you know, yeah. if you're yeah. under 35, you don't remember what a travel agent is, so... Good point. Alan Freeman has been with us, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Alan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.